Welcome to the Christian Life Church Podcast. We hope that you enjoy and are encouraged by this week's message. And if so, we would love for you to visit clcwinnipeg.ca to get further connected with our ministry, to submit a prayer request, or to find out how you can take the next step in your relationship with Jesus Christ. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Christian Life Church Winnipeg. And we pray that you would be blessed through the message you're about to hear. So this is based off a book. It's called Faith for Exiles. It's by a guy named David Kinneman. He's one of the head researchers at the Barna Group. So if you've ever seen any statistics about like the church or religion in North America or Canada or anything like that, they do a ton of research and surveys and just excellent work. And this book came out of 10 years worth of research that they did examining why young people leave the church and why we are seeing that the most rapidly growing segment of the population religiously is those who say that they're religious nuns, as in they have no religious affiliation. And so they examine that, and then they go through some ways that we can, we can maybe wrestle with that and respond to that. So they say that we are living in, it's called Digital Babylon. And that's a, a phrase that they have coined themselves, and they define it as an accelerated, complex culture that is marked by phenomenal access, profound alienation, and a crisis of authority. So they, they define what this, this moment that we're living in is digital Babylon. And so um, that's, that's a little bit confusing for us. That's not really language that we would naturally understand. So Babylon, first off, is throughout the Bible, we see the city of Babylon as a cultural leader. They're a very prosperous city. I think we have a picture of them that we can even put up there. So that's Babylon. Approximately, it's an artistic depiction of it. But they were leaders in art, in architecture, education, entertainment. They were even like a leader in lawmaking. And around the city, we can see that they had tremendous walls. These walls were actually so thick that they would have chariot races on top of them. And really, in those days, your walls were like a sign of prestige and of how, how successful your city was. And this city was actually, it was gigantic. Um, inside the walls, they figured that there was roughly about the same land area as what we would see in modern-day Chicago now. So if you've been to Chicago, it's, I think, the third or fourth largest city in North America. It's about 200 square miles. And throughout the Bible, we see that Babylon serves as this model or this archetype of, like, godlessness throughout the Bible. So our, the very first instance that we can see that is in the book of Genesis, in the story of the Tower of Babel. And... In that story, they, they get together and they say, okay, we can make bricks or whatever it was that they were doing there. We're not exactly sure what technology they had, but they decide, all right, we're smart enough now. We're going to build a tower all the way to the heavens, and then we will be on the same playing field as God, which is 
we know, a little ridiculous. But in those days, they, they actually believed that, um, that gods lived on the mountains. So if you think back to, like, Mount Olympus, and so they would want to make this tower that was mountain-sized so that they could be on the same level as God into the heavens. And God doesn't like that, and he knows that that's obviously kind of a ridiculous feat to attempt because that's not actually how it works. So he scrambles their language, and from that we assume that that's where language was born. And then we move to nations like Assyria and Persia and Rome. Throughout the book of Revelation, it is this stand-in for a godless empire, people who think that they can do everything on their own. And throughout all that time, usually what signified being the dominant empire was that you had the latest and greatest technology. So often that was in warfare. So the first ones to discover iron now had the strongest weapons, and they would become the dominant force in the world at the time. So throughout all that time, tools are improving. And each time the tools improve, they think, okay, we are now on the same level as God. We are more God-like now that we can do this. And in the Ten Commandments, God addresses this. In the book of Exodus, he says, not to make idols for ourselves. So he knows that people have this natural tendency to try to take the supernatural world and try to make it into a material form and to quantify it and to have a physical representation of it. So he says, do not make for yourselves an idol because I, I cannot be summed up by a carved wooden block. And throughout time, many of our like scientific discoveries and and advances in technology have been to quantify things that seemed formerly unknown. So you look at language, for example. For hundreds, if not thousands of years, it was oral tradition, and people would tell stories, and they would speak to each other, and then we developed a written word. And now you can write something that will last forever, and you can have look back and see ancient works from people thousands of years ago. And then you can see that people quantified math, that 2 plus 2 was no longer just a concept, but they were able to write it down. And I think a really interesting one is time. So if you think about it, we've only for like a few hundred years been able to say, okay, service starts at 6.30 and be able to get that down to the minute and everybody shows up at the same time. That's a relatively new development in, in human history. But each time an advancement like this came, this is a really fancy chart I made on Excel, so it's science. But each time an advancement came during those years, you could see that they had time to catch up with it. And the curve was pretty gradual. So they have math, and okay, we can develop what we think about this and how we use this and and the theology around it even. Until the last hundred-ish so years where we have just skyrocketed with the technology that we're developing. And now, truly, we are in this age where we think that the technology we have has made us similar to godlike quality and character. 
I think it's interesting that when people talk about like the Aztecs or the Mayans, that they look at what they built and they go, well, it had to be aliens because there's no way that those people were smart enough to do that. As, as if like, we are the peak of human history and just because we can't figure out exactly how they did it, it's like, well, aliens, I guess. It's, there's no other explanation. There's no way they could have done that. And we have so much at our disposal now, which has put us into this digital Babylon. Because here in North America, I think it's safe to say that we would, we would be the leaders culturally. Really, it would be the United States, but Canada has a very similar culture in many ways. Um, and information, the information age has been the new technology that has put us into that Babylon-like status. And not only has technology rapidly improved, it has caused everything else to speed up along with it. So if you think of food or Amazon or how, how we date and how we meet people, it is all sped up. So that has led us to this phenomenal access, profound alienation, and the crisis of authority. So phenomenal access, what does that mean? So... If you think about it, we, we can find out just about anything with, with this device. And there, at probably, at least probably once a week, I'm in conversation with somebody and I say something or they say something and I go, mm, I'm just going to fact check that real quick because I, I don't know if I, what I'm actually saying is true and I want to I wanna get that right. And it seems like I have basically the world at my fingertips and I can have any information at my disposal at any time. And we have just so much access to information, and it's so, so fast. I think one example that really stood out to me recently was the passing of Kobe Bryant, the basketball player. It was reported by TMZ like an hour before anybody else reported it. And they actually reported it before his wife found out. Um, and I happened to get a message that day from a friend who had seen the article just like moments after it had been posted. I think it was, the article was only three or four minutes old. And they sent it to me, which means that I may have found out about Kobe Bryant's passing before his wife did. Here in Winnipeg, in Canada, I had that information before the person closest to him. Now, that's obviously like a pretty extreme example of information getting out faster than it really should, but it's not that unusual, and it's not that hard to believe that that happened, because that's how fast our world is, and we kind of demand this information to come out that quickly. And we just have access to so, so much, and we can find out so many things so quickly, and unfortunately, that connectivity and being able to be reached all the time hasn't actually really brought us closer together. In many ways, it's actually isolated us. So again, with this device, I can be reached at any time. And there's a variety of ways to do that through this. You can text me, you can call me, you can send me a direct message on Facebook or Instagram. You can Snapchat. Well, I don't know Snapchat anymore, um, but you so you can't do that. But there's so many ways to contact me through this device. But just because I have greater connectivity, it doesn't mean that I actually have greater community. Because 
you can talk to me, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you know me. Not through this anyways. Because the best way to get to know people is still to sit across from them and get to know them face to face. And largely, this has taken away the need for that. So there is just like an overwhelming amount of numbers that basically if you were to take each group of people and sort them by decade, so all the people in their 80s, 70s, 60s, 50s, and so on, all the way down to teenagers and children, you would basically find that every generation as you go younger is lonelier and lonelier. We're actually having a crisis in many ways of people who are feeling lonely. And I am more accessible than ever before. And in 10 years of having a cell phone, I think I hit that this fall is when I first got a cell phone. I, I didn't experience as much loneliness as I did probably in the last year or two in all that time. Even though the connections are faster and there's more of them, it still left me feeling lonely like fairly often. And that's not a unique experience to me. That is happening throughout our young people. There's this expectation that they are connected so they should have community, but they don't. And lastly, we have this crisis of authority. And this one I think is really interesting because for a long time, we didn't have access to everybody and news didn't travel that fast. In small towns, it may have felt like it did, but largely, if there was a community you lived in, in your lifetime, you might see like a scandal or two. Um, maybe some community leader would slip up or you would find out that somebody had been cheating on their wife or whatever it may be. You might find that there was some kind of scandal and somebody who you had looked up to now no longer was able to hold the status that you had given them because they had lost your trust. But now it seems like every week there's a new scandal. There was one this week from a prominent business leader in Winnipeg. And we see more and more that people who once were figures of authority and once held our respect no longer are able to do that. And we have this crisis of authority. And all of this has left Christians in a really difficult spot because there's tension in our lifestyle because we are a people who are called to be different. We are Christ followers. And so much of what Christ taught us to do is completely counter to culture. And so with this fast, complex world, with all this access, alienation, and authority, that is why I asked if we could just sit in silence for a moment. Because often we, we don't get that, and that's something that we, we tend to avoid when we can. I actually find that when I have days off and I'm trying to just like unplug and relax, it actually takes me like a few hours to really like feel like my head is clear again because I've just been consuming and consuming and consuming and there's so much content coming at me all the time that when I actually just sit and want to like read a book, it's, it's really challenging. And so for us to just sit and reflect on a piece of scripture is one way for us to combat the noise and the speed of this digital Babylon. And so this series is going to be an antidote to all of this digital Babylon and what we're experiencing. 
But I want us to be prepared for what's going to come in the next few weeks. So if you would open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 to 16. And we will have it on the slide if you do not have a Bible with you. And if you're going to use your Bible on your phone, that's okay too. Um, redeem some of that time spent on your phone. Use the Bible app. But so, verse 13 to 16. It says, So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. So this passage has actually produced my favorite piece of research that I've ever come across. And that was uh, this first line. So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. So what that translates to more accurately, I found out, is the phrase, gird up the loins of your mind. And if you're not familiar with the phrase, gird up your loins, I wasn't either. But I found a helpful diagram to show us what that is. So this is how to gird up your loins. So they would wear, like, full-length, like, robes back in those days. Um, So if you had to do physical labor or go to war, then you would gird up your loins. So you, you take the fabric at the front, and you pull it all forward, and then you go to the next slide, you tuck it through your legs like a diaper, and then you wrap it around, and then you tie it in a knot in front of you so that you're, you're now ready to go for war. So you gird up the loins of your mind. So he's saying, like, get ready, because there, there's work to be done. There's a battle to be fought here. So gird up the loins of your mind, because it takes work to follow Jesus. And Peter is pretty unapologetic about that here. And he's pretty unapologetic that, about that, and it, I think he backed it up with the life that he lived as he, he literally laid down his life in order to follow Jesus. But he's saying, it takes work to follow Jesus, and you need to actually put all the cards in and, and get ready because it's going to take work. Following Jesus requires that your life changes. And throughout this whole passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, it alludes to the book of Leviticus. And basically, the book of Leviticus is just God saying to the Israelites, this is the way that I want you to live. And if you do that, this is what I'm going to do in return. So here are a ton of laws. He gives them 613 laws to follow. And he promises them that if they can follow those well, that they will have a good life and they will be a blessed nation. It says that there won't be sickness, there won't be failing crops, there will be health in their families, their cupboards will be full, their enemies will not be able to get to them. They will have all this prosperity, but first, in order to get all of that, they must be holy. The onus is on them, and they're going to have to work really hard in order to receive anything. Similarly, we can have it all but it's much different for us. So we're going to look at another passage. This is 
just a little bit down in the same chapter. It's verses 18 to 20. It says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. So there's been a a big shift here from what God had given to the Israelites. He gave them rules and laws to follow. And he said, this is what you do. And when you mess up, actually, you need to sacrifice an animal or you need to sacrifice something to pay the price for that sin. But what Peter tells us here is that that price has been paid. And not with mere gold or silver, which lose their value, but it was paid with the precious blood of Jesus Christ who was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And that's our hope. It's like the Israelites, we have promises available to us. And we have a reward that's available to us. But it's much different. It is not that we will have health and prosperity here on earth, but it is that we will have forgiveness of sins, hope, joy, peace, a full life here, and an eternity spent in paradise in the presence of God. But first, we don't have to say, or we don't have to be holy, and we don't have to work really hard. First, we just have to say yes. Because the work has already been done. So we don't have to do the work that the Israelites did. We just have to accept that the work has been done and say yes to that work. And then we can be forgiven. And we can enter into that life with God. And yes, it's hard. Because those promises don't come here on earth. But what is promised is that God is going to walk with us and he's going to send his Holy Spirit to be with us. And for the Israelites, it was work and it was sacrifice. But we simply just say yes. We say, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you lived, you died, and you rose again under your own power. And I ask that you would forgive me of my sinful nature because I'm putting that behind me and I am choosing you as the Lord over my life. And I actually want to follow in the way that you lived here on earth, Jesus. So if you are a believer, then you have a job to do. And as you leave this place, you have to leave thinking, I have to gird up the loins of my mind. Because God has given me a task. And as you enter back out into digital Babylon, where things are trying to confuse you and to isolate you and to, to speed up your lifestyle, there may be some things that you have to look at in your life and go, okay, this is something that I actually need to, need to slow down with or I need to put, put on hold here for a second. Because this is making it really hard for me to actually follow Jesus and to live a life that looks like the one that Jesus did. And if you're not a believer in this place, um, I would just love to invite you into that and to let you know that everything that you find in this life is not all 
that this life has to offer, but that Jesus has actually made a way for us to live a better life here.